Some younger people leading us in worship this morning? You know, uh, I don't know about you, but when I think about the world, you know, when I grew up as a kid and think about the world today, and you think about the theme of some of the songs that the kids just sang, and uh, you realize that, you know, fear is a very real uh, commodity in our culture uh, for us as Christians. And so many of us, you know, shrink down because of the fear that comes with standing up for Christ. And, and this morning, I just couldn't help but think that um, I, I heard this uh, thought, and I, I thought it was an excellent thought, that good and evil are like seeds. And, um, you know, you plant a seed, and it doesn't instantly give you fruit. You plant a tomato seed, and it takes a while for that seed to develop. And, and good and evil are like that. Like, you do good in your life, and you do good, and you do good. And as we were singing these songs, I thought of one of my favorite psalms is the 73rd Psalm. And uh, there's a temple worker there, a musician in the 73rd Psalm, and he says, you know, I've served the Lord all my life, but it doesn't seem like it pays off. And he said, I look around at the world, and it seems like all the bad guys win. Uh, Even the bad guy's kid, you know, gets the home run. And my kid, you know, doesn't even hit a home run ever. He strikes out with bases loaded, you know. And I had my devotions this morning, you know. How, How does that work? And evil is the same way. A lot of times, you know, uh, people choose to do evil, and evil is like a seed, and but eventually, in time, it catches up. And uh, I think so much of the scripture talks about that, that put your hope in when the Lord's coming back. And uh, some of these songs just reverberated on that, and uh, even the psalmist in the 73rd Psalm catches a glimpse of heaven. And then he says, oh, what a foolish person I was to just judge my life in the context of of the first hundred years and not think of eternity. And uh, I, I just think, you know, to hear our kids sing these songs and, and uh, have them come from their heart and understand that as life gets tougher and we take a stand for Christ, um, eventually all that will be rewarded. And uh, it's the truth and so on. Well, if you've been uh, tracking with us, take your Bible, pay, turn to page uh, 1202 or so, and uh, we're back in First Peter. And uh, if you've been tracking with the Apostle Peter in this particular section of Scripture, you notice that uh, we're kind of picking up a theme in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and um, verse 12. uh, Peter says, look, live such good lives among the pagans. You Christians are to stand out against the backdrop of the non-Christian world. Live such good lives among the pagans, like don't retreat from the pagans. Don't go hide from the pagans. Don't create a bubble for yourself. But in your living, in the context, remember, Jesus came into the world and incarnated uh, into the God, incarnated himself into the world. So live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and then glorify God on the day he visits us. Just be willing to invest your life, do the right thing, no matter what, and someday your life will be vindicated. And it might not be in the context, you know, of your everyday life. Uh, But as you live that life, and uh, and remember in um, chapter 1 and verse uh, 13, Peter says, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. I I always, that, that verse really strikes me because it says, take your hope, and set it fully on the day when Christ comes back. Don't 
take your hopes and set them in the context of just your first hundred years, but set your hope on the day that Christ comes back because that's the day that all of your living will be vindicated. And uh, that's the day that the whole pagan world will be, um, you know, crawling under rocks to get away from the judgment of God and so on and so forth. And so set your hope fully. Do the right thing and someday uh, you'll be glad you did. And then this theme emerges in uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 of submission, submission to authority. And uh, Peter holds up Jesus as the ultimate example of submission to authority. And uh, it starts out with being submissive to the government, he he says in uh, verse 13. And uh, it parallels, as we've seen in previous weeks, what Paul says in his letters. But of course, coming from Peter who, um, you know, wasn't about to ever let Jesus suffer. You remember um, when, when Jesus said he's going to go to the cross and he's going to suffer at the hands of the authorities, and Peter said, oh, no, that's not going to happen on my watch, and tried to prevent him and so forth. And then when Jesus was being arrested, you remember in the garden, Peter picks out his sword and uh, takes a whack at a guy. The guy ducks, cuts off his ear, and Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. It has to be this way. It has to be this way. And... Uh, and then, of course, Peter himself denies even knowing Jesus because he's not about to suffer, you know, with Jesus. And so he denies even knowing him and so forth. And, uh, and all of a sudden now, Peter's all about submission. And so I always like, what, what happened to Peter? What happens when you hang around with Christ, you come to Christ, you uh, attach your identity to Christ? Uh, what, what happens to you when you're transformed, uh, when you become a disciple, when you attach your uh, life and its identity and its meaning and its purpose to Christ? Well, I think Peter went from simply thinking about himself to thinking about what God is up to in the world and what part God had for Peter to play in that. And it was a submissive role. And uh, I think it was a challenge to Peter. Uh, but he changed. Uh, thinking about what God was up to in the world, I think Peter realized that, that contentment in, the, in life is not so much in finding comfort as it is finding satisfaction and contentment in serving the purpose for which God has us here and giving ourselves wholly to what the Lord is doing. And submitting to God, you know. Uh, In fact, I would just say he found out what it meant to live a God-first life. Instead of worrying about himself, he worried about what was God up to and what does God want to have happen in the culture and in the days in which I'm here. And and he gave himself to this God-first kind of posture. And then tradition has it that Peter ended up being crucified himself and didn't think he was worthy to be uh, crucified in the same way the Lord was and asked to be crucified upside down. And uh, tradition has it that that's what happened to him. And so ultimately, Peter is submissive to the point of giving up his life. And uh, just a a little aside, you know, on Memorial Day weekend, we asked uh, Luther to pray for us. And uh, Luther's a Marine, and I thought he would show up in his uh, Marine uniform. And I said, oh, you don't have your uniform on on Memorial Day. And uh, this guy said to me, he said, you know, I'm not worthy to wear this uniform today. This uniform represents on Memorial Day people who shed their blood, you know, for our country. And I'm a Marine, but I'm not worthy to wear the uniform today. This is about them, not me. You know, and I thought, what a great, you know, attitude. And how much should that be ours? You know, uh, that Jesus shed his blood for us and that uh, we would recognize that to the point of us being willing to be obedient to him. 
And so <clears throat> in 2.13, he starts out and says, you know, this ought to be, this submission ought to show up in our relationship to the government. He ends that section by saying, honor the king. And then in verse 18, as we saw last week, this submission is to bosses and to masters and to whoever's in authority in the uh, context of our society, our culture. And uh, verse 21 says, you know, to this we were called. This is our calling as Christians. If, if we're going to follow the Lord, we're going to actually follow him. And he becomes our example. And so now this morning, Peter moves on and um, applies this principle of submission to marriage and to our um, personal relationships. Now, Peter was married, so Peter knows of what he speaks. Peter, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, you might remember, healed Peter's mother-in-law. <clears throat> so Peter is a married guy, and in chapter 3, verse 1, here's what Peter says. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Uh, down in verse 5, same thing. For this is the way holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah and Abraham and so on. So I know the word submission is a buzzword, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty tough word for contemporary Americans to digest. But in the Bible, I think, um, in this section in particular, um, God reveals that he has a design for relationships. He has a purpose, and he has a design for relationships. He has an authoritative order or a, a role for us to play in the context of marriage. And if you um, were to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, uh, you might remember the whole creation of marriage, God's idea always like to remind people that marriage is God's idea. And uh, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 that uh, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Helper. No suitable helper was found for Adam. I'm in Genesis chapter 2 and uh, verse uh, 20. And then verse 21 says, So the Lord caused the, the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and he closed up the place with flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought it, he brought her to the man, and the man said, wow, that's my translation. Adam said, you know, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God gives his prescription for marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two uh, will become one flesh. And so there's a, there's a, a creation design. The, the man you recognize was created first. And, uh, and then God designed and created Eve by taking something away from the man and creating a woman and making marriage to be this completion of these two people becoming one again before God. And that, you know, is how God began marriage. And so, you know, uh, when you examine that word in verse 20 that says, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, the word helper or helpmate, as some of your Bibles might translate, uh, actually, if you uh, check into the Hebrew of that word, it literally has the idea of a responder, a responder. And so no suitable responder was found in all of God's creation for Adam. And so God created something out of Adam, uh, a woman, and he created marriage. 
And marriage um, is designed, uh, we learn through the scripture, to mimic our relationship with God. God has a purpose for marriage beyond you and me. It's not always about us. Uh, It's about God having this design, men and women, to uh, reflect into the culture, the pagan world in which we live, this dynamic of how we relate to God and how God relates to us. And God intended for our marriages to be sort of a, a, a video or a movie demonstration or a DVD of this dynamic relationship that happens between us and heaven. The church, as you know, is called the bride of Christ. And one of the first things that happens when we get to heaven, if I read the book of Revelation right, uh, the first thing on the agenda is this marriage supper of the Lamb. This giant wedding party where the bride and Christ come together. And uh, the Bible in Revelation says, you know, blessed or happy are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's really interesting. We're going to, Lord willing, study this uh, for Christmas this year, but in the book of Revelation, there are, you know, there's a lot of bad news in the book of Revelation about what's coming. But there are seven verses that start with the word blessed in Revelation. Happy is the best translation. And, and seven times in Revelation. So you've got this disastrous, you know, end of the world judgment coming on the world. But there's seven different places where um, God says, but blessed in the midst of all this are these people, those people. Those. And here is one of them. Blessed or happy are the people who know that they're invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, the bride of Christ. And so more is at stake in our marriage than just us. Uh, We're God's illustration to the world of how people relate to God and and God relates to us. And so a God-first marriage takes that into account. A God-first marriage says this isn't about me just reacting to my wife or my uh, wife reacting to me. This is... I'm in the process of demonstrating the way that God relates to people. And uh, it's not just about us. And so uh, in a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul beautifully intertwines the marriage relationship with the relationship between Christ and the church. If you're familiar with that passage, uh, it's towards the end of Ephesians uh, chapter 5. And so just like the Lord goes first, husbands are called to go first. We have this role in our marriages that's kind of like Christ. And just like Christ sacrificially loves first, and we have the privilege of responding with submission to this overwhelming sacrificial love of Christ giving his life for us, the church. Um, And so uh, the wife then responds with submission. It's a, in marriage, it's designed so that the husband, in my understanding of Scripture, goes first with sacrificial love and then frees a wife to be able to respond with this submissive kind of love. The idea of submission is responding to being loved. That's the way God originally intended all the way back from the very beginning, a responder. And, you know, sometimes people will say to me, uh, you know, hey, my marriage is in trouble. Can you help me? And I'll say, well, look, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is your marriage isn't in trouble. The bad news is it's you. The bad news is, you know, no marriage can ever be any better than the two people who make it up. It's just that simple. But the good news is you can become a better person. You, husband, can become more like Christ. And you, wife, can become more like the church is called to be. 
And the more that we uh, are transformed into the likeness of Christ and the church, you know, the better our marriages can be. It's really that simple. And uh, I, I just think that sometimes, you know, we think about marriage and we think, oh, my marriage is in trouble, which is basically saying the other person is wrong and needs to be straightened out. Well, the truth is, no, it's us together. Uh, men uh, who make this verse their life verse, I know some men, it's like, wives must submit to their husbands. That's my life verse. That's the only verse I know in the entire scriptures. You know? Have you met guys like that? Um, I've met several people like that, and uh, they use the idea of this verse to sort of power over their wives, but I would suggest they don't even begin to understand what it really means in the context of everything else that the Bible has to say. Submission has to do with appointed authority and responsibility and roles. It's not about worth or value. And submission certainly doesn't mean inferior. Jesus was by no means inferior to the Roman soldiers who were nailing him to the cross. But he submitted to them for the purposes of God. God had a purpose for his life, a reason for him to go to the cross. He was in no way inferior because he was submissive. And I think we need to understand that this is a matter of accepting God's order of things. And that's why it's so important, young people, to find another Christian who understands this. And not just a Christian who says they're a Christian, but a Christian who's growing, a Christian who's a disciple, a Christian who wants more of Christ, who wants to mature in Christ, who wants to become and live a God-first uh, kind of life. And, uh, you know, if you... Um, if you slip down to verse 7 in this passage where Peter addresses the husbands, he says, husbands, in the same way, in the same submissive way, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wife and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You know, be considerate. Uh, in the same way, and again, this echoes Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, which in verse 21 starts out, and, and Paul says in Ephesians 5, submit to one another, listen, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Submit to one another. That's how he starts that great passage in Ephesians 5. For the Lord's sake. You're doing this because this is what God has ordered our marriages to be. Submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church, Paul says. And wives, submit to your loving husband like the church, like the, the, the church submits to Christ. And so when a husband is unselfish and acts like Christ, and Christ always goes first, right? Christ always goes first. And we, the bride, get to respond to his initiatives, his love. And then a wife is free to respond with submission. And so in the ideal Christian marriage, you know, we have this mimicking of our relationship with the Lord that gets played out in our marriages, which, again, is why it's so important to find a Christian mate uh, in order to make that work. Um, and so, but uh, I don't think that's what Peter's talking about, the ideal Christian marriage. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about wives who are stuck in marriages where their husbands aren't believers, Let's read this again in verse 1 and 2. He says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over. <clears throat> He's not primarily talking about uh, people who find it easy to submit because they have loving husbands. But what if you have a husband 
who's not loving at all? What if you have a husband who doesn't understand what the Lord has done for them? What if you have a husband who's an unbeliever? What if your husband doesn't want to honor God, doesn't believe in God's word, doesn't cherish you, doesn't want to go first, doesn't know how to go first? He's one of these guys who already knows everything without God. Well, submission is the way to change the situation, according to this passage of Scripture. Uh, Just like Peter has said, well, what if you have a harsh boss who treats you unfairly? Remember? That was in last week's passage. Or what if you have a moron government like King Nero, who was in place when Peter was writing this? And what are you talking about, be submissive to this government? You know? And so uh, submission, uh, what about submission or sacrificial love when your spouse is not tracking spiritually and doesn't know uh, about Christ? And I would say that submission, um, you know, does not mean that every whim of your husband is your supreme command. Um, But it does mean that you're not trying to compete and to rebel and to fight every step of the way. Uh, You're seeking to be this helpmate, this responder. And I don't think that submission means that you should submit to abuse or abandonment and those kinds of things. There is provision for getting away from those kind of situations in the scriptures. But overall, what Peter's talking about here is this desire to kind of uh, achieve God's plan and God's purpose and God's will. And the example that he uses here is um, Sarah and Abraham in verse 6. You remember um, in Genesis chapter 12, God came to uh, Abraham and God said to Abraham, I want you to leave where you are. I want you to leave your country, leave your people, leave your relatives and go to where I'll show you. So I always imagine Abraham coming home that night and sitting down at the dinner table with his wife, Sari, and saying, uh, ah, we're moving. Get packing. You know? And she's like, well, where are we going? He's like, I don't know. He's like, well, where are we going to live? Well, I don't know. Well, what are you going to do for work? You know, I really don't know. And then she says, okay, honey. Right? Can you imagine that happening? I mean, but it says that Abraham and Sarah left, you know, and, and they took off. And, and then Peter, uh, of all things, in verse 6 and 7 here, he, he finds the one place in the entire Old Testament where Sarah calls Abraham master. And he quotes it here, right? Uh, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called, her, called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what's right and don't give way to fear. And so he finds that one place and and quotes it, and it's really just another name for husband. Um, But anyway, uh, I I think the the key thing and the thing that we sang about this morning so much, uh, do you notice the end of that uh, verse? It says, um, Sarah obeyed Abraham, called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what's right and don't give way to what? Fear. Fear. What's behind the idea of I'm not going to submit, I'm going to take care of myself, and I'm going to hold things at a distance, and I'm going to, you know, isn't it fear? I would say to you that fear, in a Christian's life, fear is never your friend. All over the Bible, God says, fear not, fear not, fear not. Old and New Testament, fear not, fear not. Fear is never 
our friend. And so often fear is what dictates our choices, our responses in different situations. Um, and so if you think uh, of the fear that Sarah perhaps had to overcome in going with Abraham and launching out on this adventure that God uh, had uh, in mind, you know, in fact, when God announced to uh, Sarah that she's going to have a baby, remember, she laughs out loud, right? She just thinks that's totally ridiculous. And uh, fear, you know, is paralyzing. And fear keeps, I think, so many uh, people uh, from even entertaining the idea, I wonder what would happen, I wonder what God would do if I were to be submissive in the way that the Bible is calling me to be. I wonder what God might do. I wonder how God might show up if I were to just put my life into his hands, trust his oversight, trust him being my shepherd. He tells me I should be submissive, and I wonder what would happen if I just did this. And the goal, you see, is to win your husband. The goal is to win your mate, if you will. Uh, You might call it submission evangelism. (laughs) The goal in being submissive, I think whether it's in the world, whether it's with your boss, whether it's in your marriage, the goal for us as believers is to help the next person come along and see the superiority of our God and our faith and his word and so forth. And that's always the goal. That's why we're in the world and it's why we live. And so, and this is kind of crazy. Did you notice this, ladies? It says, wives, in the same way, verse 1, be submissive to your husband so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over, listen to this, without words. Without words. And I think, wow, I wonder how many wives, Christian wives, have, you know, had nagging words that have driven husbands even further away or kids further away but peter has a better idea he says that you could be that we can that god will cause our spouses to be won over without a word and and you know sometimes i think words just get in the way and peter's got a better idea he says uh without words by the behavior of wives by the behavior, not by berating and nagging and harping and preaching and all of those kinds of things, but by behavior. Don't tell me, show me. Let the life of Christ show up, the servant life of Christ, the sacrificial love of Christ, show up in my life and let it play out in my choices and decisions and let my husband see it. And, uh, you know, when anybody becomes a Christian, a great thing happens to us um, the Bible says, and well, right here in Peter, in, in uh, chapter 1 and verse 22, uh, God says that we become pure. We become pure. In God's sight, we become pure. And that's the only sight that really matters. That's the, that's the, it's God's evaluation that we cherish and value the most. And so verse 22 says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth of the gospel, so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. When the love of God, the sacrificial love of God gets into a person and they realize that that love has purified them in God's eyes forever, um, it, it translates into a love for the next person. And so our love for people, you know, it's the two great commandments, love God with all your heart and then love the next person as you love yourself. And that's really kind of what's at play here. Uh, we, we are pure, and to, to have God declare us pure on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice is such good news, it changes everything. 
And it enables us to be able to love the next person and to, uh, to reverence the fact that God created the next person and that God longs for that person to be restored into a relationship with himself. And so our living is calculated uh, in that direction, including for our spouses. And so in the same way, be submissive to your husband so that even if any of them don't believe the word, they can be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. The purity and the reverence of your life. If you really believe you're pure, well, you begin to live that way. Uh, because it's who you are. Remember, I always like to say this. I, I, what you really believe changes the way you think. And what you really think changes the way you feel. And what you think and feel changes the way you make choices. But it starts with what we believe. And at the core of our spirit is our beliefs, our faith in Christ, and this purity that's ours. And it changes the way we think about ourselves. Changes the way we should think about other Christians. It changes, you know, then our uh, feelings because we're thinking different, we feel different, and ultimately that conditions the choices we make and the way we interact with one another and just bring that all the way down uh, into a, a, a marriage. And so he says, um, you know, uh, husbands can be won over by the purity and reverence of your lives, by behavior. And then he talks about beauty in verse 3. He says, your beauty... And uh, I think this verse is as contemporary as this afternoon. Uh, verse 3 says, um, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braiding hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, and fine clothes. If you take any significant occasion in a woman's life and you give her a gift certificate for either her hair, jewelry, or clothes, you will be a home run. Have you learned that? I mean, it's just the way it is. And it's as old as Peter. And uh, I just think this is so contemporary. It's just so true. And uh, some of your Bibles um, in, in, uh, uh, in that third verse says your beauty should not come only or, uh, you know, the idea is merely like there's nothing wrong with, you know, combing your hair and putting on a dress and wearing some jewelry. Um, but your adornment um, should be more than just the external. And that's what he goes on to talk about. He said, instead, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So I hate to say this, but um, there's a fading beauty and an unfading beauty. And in spite of the plethora of um, products to kind of stem off the, un, the, the fading beauty, the truth of the matter is uh, we fade. And I, I think, you know, uh, whenever I think about beautiful, I say to myself, um, maybe when a little boy is born, we might say, isn't he beautiful? But soon after that, we never talk about guys as beautiful. Have you ever noticed? I mean, you don't just say, oh, look at Dwight over there. Isn't he beautiful? I mean, you just don't say that, right? It doesn't make any sense. But women, you know, are beautiful. And beauty is a, a, a quality that I believe God assigned to women. I think women are the apex of God's creation. I don't think Eve was an afterthought. I think the explanation in Genesis is all part of a plan. But, you know, uh, this is the, 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 the refined uh, genius of God. The apex of creation is the woman. And uh, I, I think that um, she's the most refined of God's creation. She's sort of the capstone, but, but beauty isn't only external, it's 
also internal. And this next verse, you know, um, really is about this internal kind of beauty. It's a beauty that's deeper than uh, the surface kind of beauty. And again, I don't think there's any beauty in letting yourself go and not paying any attention to your appearance. There's no beauty in that. I mean, you read the Song of Solomon, and, and you see how the bride adorned herself and, and so on. But what Peter is getting at, the point is that beauty is deeper than just the external. There is an unfading kind of beauty that, in fact, gets better and better as time goes on. And uh, it reminds me of the passage in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul says, look, we don't lose heart. Even though the fading part is fading... We don't lose heart. Well, why is that? Well, because as Christians, we realize that even though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day by day. Outwardly, we're kind of wearing down. Inwardly, we're just winding up. Inwardly, we're becoming more beautiful as time goes by. Inwardly, in our souls, we're going to be clothed with this new body. But that inward beauty that's happening in our souls... Uh, day by day is getting better and better. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us this eternal glory. Ever imagine your soul being glorious, being filled with the presence of Christ and being filled with glory someday that's going to get this new body and, and, and that glory far outweighs all the troubles. And so we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen. Because what's seen is temporary, but what's unseen is eternal. The development of our souls is eternal. And this internal beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit um, is of great worth to God. You know, I think a gentle and quiet spirit is the opposite of fear. The opposite of fear, a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, If you think about it... uh, Submission is like makeup for the soul. <laughs> I was trying to think of an analogy or a way to talk about this. Um, and by the way, this word adornment that Peter uses, is, uh, it's uh, the word cosmos. And uh, it's, we get our English word cosmos from that, and it means the ordered universe. It's kind of like the opposite of chaos. And we get our word cosmetics from that. Okay, so cosmetics is, you know, Uh, taking chaos and ordering it, right? I mean, and that's what cosmetics really is. And that's the word that Peter uses, adornment, is taking the chaos and making uh, something beautiful out of it, you know? Uh, And so in our souls, the opposite of chaos is a gentle and a quiet spirit. The opposite of chaos is being able to entrust ourselves to the Lord in such a way that his oversight, his shepherding, as we talked about last week, satisfies us. And brings us contentment. It adorns our soul. It brings order to the chaos of the inside. As we live in the world and we see all the chaos and and we're able to live with this uh, entirely different uh, resource that's coming into our lives called the Spirit of God. Uh, Did you know that the only words that Jesus ever used to describe what was going on on the inside of him comes from Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, I am gentle and humble. Jesus used names to describe his roles and so forth. But when he describes his sort of personality, if you will, the only two words he ever uses is gentle and humble. Jesus. And so 
it's attractive to God, this gentle and quiet spirit. God values what we are on the inside. Man, of course, looks always on the outside, uh, but God is always looking on the heart. And what's really attractive to God is this gentle, quiet spirit because you've entrusted yourself to the Lord who is overseeing your souls and who you trust completely and who will deliver on all the promises. And it translates into this kind of resting in his oversight of uh, our souls. And then we come to verse 5. It says, for in this way, the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. You ever ask yourself, like, where's your hope? I think there's three non-negotiables in the Christian life that are all tied to the Lord. Faith, hope, and love. Without faith, hope, and love, you can't really be a believer. And they're all tied to Christ. But when it comes to hope, I find that a lot of people have their hope in their husband. Uh, I told my wife a long time ago, don't put your hope in your husband. <laughs> put your hope in God. If you put your hope in your job, if you put your hope in friends, you put your hope in your family, you put your hope in money, Put your hope in God. And here's Peter saying, you know, in the past, all through the Old Testament, that godly women put their hope in God. And they believed, as we have the expanded, you know, revelation from God that someday he's coming back and someday our lives will be vindicated and what a great day that's going to be. And we have this glorious future all planned for us. Put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in things working out here to the way you would like because you'll be disappointed. Guaranteed, The world is a very broken place. And so put your hope in God. And that's the way people got through in the past. That's the way people dealt with, you know, dealing with difficult husbands and circumstances and so forth. If you put your hope in God, you become secure. You become confident. And our outlook always determines our attitude. Our outlook determines our attitude. Our hope conditions our attitude, our feelings and, and thoughts and so forth. And then finally, you know, verse 7 is the husband's part. And husbands, in the same way, in the same submissive way, be considerate um, as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as a weaker partner uh, and so forth. Be considerate of your wife. Uh, every wife wants to be considered. <laughs> every woman wants to be Loved wants to be understood. She's not another guy. She doesn't really want to have to muscle her way into your attention. She doesn't, have to, doesn't want to have to fight her way into your attention. And, and generally, I think what Peter's talking about here, generally women are physically weaker. They're not going to win if you get into a fist fight, generally speaking. And, um, you know, she's generally uh, physically weaker, but not, you know, this isn't moral, this isn't mental, it's not you know, weaker mentally, it's not weaker spiritually. In fact, Peter says, treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. You know, uh, our uh, wives uh, are people who um, are fellow heirs of the grace of, of God's life. She's a person uh, cherished by God in and of her own right. She's not just an extension of a husband. She's not just there to just be an extension. No, she's a fellow heir of the grace of life, Peter is saying. And so she has her own thoughts and her own feelings and her own dreams and her own hurts and hopes and desires. And, and yet we stand before God as one. And so be considerate in the same way. And sometimes it takes submission, doesn't it, to be considerate, to take the time to listen and uh, to um, uh, mentally and emotionally engage and, uh, and then finally, Peter says, you know, marriage is a spiritual relationship. It affects your relationship with God. 
He, he says here, be considerate as you live with your wives, treat them with respect as weaker partners, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Because once we're married, we're one before God, and that's how he sees us. And so this spiritual relationship in marriage affects our relationship with God. Um, sacrificial love and uh, submissive love have to go together. Uh, love is simply putting the other person first. Isn't that really what love is? Isn't that what God did for you? He said, I'm going to take the hit because I love you. I'm going to put you first, and I'm going to suffer for you. And uh, he submitted to his own plan to put his son on the cross and shed his blood. And so this beautiful dance that marriage is, uh, mimicking our relationship with the Lord. So the stronger our relationship with the Lord becomes, the more beautiful our marriages become. And I believe that's what Peter is uh, seeking to uh, encourage us to do. Let's pray together this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we again are so thankful for your word, uh, and we're so out of step in our culture with your word. Uh, we live in a day, as you well know, where um, even the whole notion of marriage being a man and a woman is being challenged, let alone the roles, Father, that you designed to be played out and the, the roles that uh, you intend and make the most sense and, and give the most meaning uh, to marriage and so on and so forth. And so I, I pray, especially I think this morning of our young people, and I pray, Father, for them that they would find mates who love you and uh, that they would... Uh, orchestrate their marriages to be this uh, dance that they first learn from you and that as you have uh, your love pouring into each of these people's lives that they would understand your purpose for their marriage and that they would give themselves to it and that uh, our young people father would get past the idea of uh, just the selfishness that thinks that this is all about us and realize that you have a plan and you have roles assigned for reasons and uh, that you would use uh, our marriages to draw other people to yourself. As people observe us, and not so much our talk, but our behavior and how we treat one another and how we respect one another and how we love one another, Father, that, that the world would see something different and be drawn to you because you're the source of that. You're the source of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Uh, you're the source of our reverence. And so may we be filled with that to the point that you could use us to accomplish your purposes and win other people into your kingdom. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.